to have fun in church, and uh, so glad you're with us this morning. And if you're our guest, man, we're so grateful that you're here and uh, be a part with us this morning. Hopefully, it feels like family because that's what we are. Uh, we're a family, love to get together, laugh together, be together, and uh, and just enjoy time together. And that's kind of part of what Trunk or Treat's all about, isn't it? And so, uh, if you can't make it, please be in prayer. And uh, maybe you've got some neighbors, send them our direction, and uh, we'll send them home with bagfuls of candy. Trust me. I have seen how much candy we have, and we spent the small fortune on candy, and then people donated on top of that, so we have a lot of candy, and uh, parents, were really apologetic, we're sorry, um, your kids are going to be a little wired this afternoon or this evening, but it's going to be fun, amen. Well, listen, we are in a series, uh, kind of week five of a series called A Framework for Life, and uh, we've been exploring this idea about what does it look like for us to be this community of regular people who are living out God's story. And uh, we recognize we live in a world that isn't living God's story, right? That they have another story, a different story uh, that they're living out of. And, and for us, it could be very easy to kind of fall into that kind of path and live that story. But we've been unpacking over the last four weeks in particular, kind of specifically God's story. And uh, we've recognized and we've broken this into four chapters or four movements. And uh, if you remember, we, we kind of dealt with in week one, uh, creation and the fact that we're creating in God's image, the fact that God delighted in us, he created us to be with him. In fact, what marked that season was God's presence with his people. That's what God designed. God wanted us to thrive and have everything that we needed to find in him, in his presence. And we know in chapter 2 something went wrong, that there was sin, that there was kind of brokenness that in, entered the world, and we, we, humanity, began to believe a fake news story. Right? We began to believe some lies that the enemy said that God isn't good enough, that you're not going to find everything that you need to thrive in life in God. Um, and so we, we recognize that's sin. Uh, and really that at its core is what sin is. is. Sin is depending upon self for everything, not depending on God. And so we recognize there's a problem, but last week, man, last week was full of hope because we talked about the cross and the resurrection. We titled chapter three, Redemption. And uh, how many of you are grateful for the work of Jesus on the cross? Come on. That, that we, through the work of Christ, in fact, today is Reformation Day, right? Which is the 502nd anniversary of when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis on the door. And he said that, you know, we're, we're, Born again through grace alone, right? By faith alone, in Christ alone for God's glory. And he reminded the church of redemption. He reminded the church of reformation and what God had called us to. Um, but how many of you know that's not where the story ends? The story doesn't end with, okay, I'm saved. Uh, that's great. I've got my golden ticket to heaven. Now I'm just going to hang on with everything that I got, Right? Hopefully I'll make it to eternity. Anybody hope thinking they'll make it to eternity, right? Like, you know. But, but how many of you know that, that God's not waiting for eternity to start? Eternity's already started. That the redemption op opens up to us chapter four of his story because God isn't just about redeeming you. God is about restoring you to his original purpose. And that's what we're going to explore today. We're going to take some time to try to just understand and take a look at what does chapter 4 of this story look like. We ought to be experiencing an 
ever-expanding experience of the life of God here on earth right now. That it's not about us just hanging on. It's not about us just trying our hardest. But God has something that he's up to in us and through us. And really that's what chapter 4 of this story is all about. But for many people, and especially many Christians, they miss the fact that chapter 4 has already started. And, And, you know, part of our challenge is that because we don't understand the end of the story... We often get, oftentimes get confused about how we're supposed to live out today. Now, I uh, follow a team. Um, uh, it's important that you get to know me a little bit, you know. And I am a raving Liverpool football club fan. Now, some of you are like, some of you know what that means. This is awesome. Thank you. I have another Liverpool fan right here. I love that. Janet, is that Janet? Janet is a Liverpool fan. We, her and I, we just became best friends. This is awesome. Yeah, no, 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 no. Did anyone see the scoreline last week? Manchester United against Liverpool. Yeah, it was 5-0 to Liverpool. It was awesome. Highlight of my week. It was fantastic. But I'm a massive Liverpool fan, and so part of the problem with being a Liverpool fan is that they play in England, which is about eight, it's eight hours ahead of us, which means that on a Saturday morning, oftentimes their games are on at 4.30 in the morning. Is there anybody that gets up on 4.30 on a Saturday morning? Look, as much as, yeah, some of you, God bless you, you're awesome, or you're sick, we just don't know. But, but me getting up at 4.30 on a Saturday morning is not exactly my idea of a great Saturday morning, even though I'm a raving Liverpool fan. So you know what I do? I DVR the game. Now, here's what I've noticed about DVRing the game, okay? Now, some of you are going to maybe not like that. You know, if you ever kind of, some of you just watch live sports, Right? Some of you in the room, you're like, okay, if I have to, if the sea chickens are playing while I'm at church. (laughs) I might DVR the game, but nobody tell me the score, right? And some of you play that game. I don't play that game. I don't care. I love knowing the score, and then I'll still watch the game. My wife thinks I'm absolutely crazy. But here's the thing that I've noticed. Because I know the score... I watch the game a little bit differently. Now some of you, when you're watching the game, you're screaming at the TV, you're trying to adjust the referee, some of you are doing spirit fingers at the TV, trying to get them to miss the field goal or something like that, right? Because you don't know the end score, but for me, because I have already figured out what the score is, and I'm willing to just kind of go and watch this replay, so to speak, I watch the game entirely differently. And so I don't scream at the TV, In fact, I don't even get that upset when my team isn't doing that well in portions of the game because I know the end score, and Liverpool beats Manchester United 5-0. That's all that matters. (laughs) And the point that I'm trying to make, in fact, maybe it's not sports for you. Maybe it's, man, you already know the end of the movie because you read the book. Some of you are that way. You actually read books. That's amazing. But isn't it true that that when you know the end of the story or when you know what the final scoreline is, you watch the game or you watch the movie a little bit differently, don't you? Because you know the end of the story. And the reality is that because many in the Christian world don't understand the end of God's story correctly, we end up living out kind of this kind of life where it's kind of scrambled. How do I live out life in the here and now? Well, today we want to take some time to understand 
the end of the story. In fact, the Bible actually says it this way in Proverbs 29, 18. He says, where there is no vision, people perish. They wander. And so to have no destination, you know, if, you don't, if you're without a destination, you're on the road to nowhere. And so today, we want to talk about the destination. We want to talk about the end of the story. What is the end of God's story? Now, for some of you this morning, um, you've probably, you may have read too many Left Behind series. And it might be that, you know, for some of you in the room this morning, maybe you've not even thought about the end of the story, but it's good for us to think about the end of the story because to understand what the Bible actually say, says helps us live differently today. Now, for some of us in the room this morning, our, our vision of the end of the story might be something a little bit like, you know, Tom and Jerry's version of heaven. Some of you remember Tom and Jerry. <clears throat> he was working with our graphics guy the other day, and he's like, man, I can't find any videos of Tom and Jerry, you know, kind of thing, right? But, but Tom and Jerry, you know how Tom was always chasing Jerry, and then Tom would die, and he would kind of float up to heaven, and as he floated up, he kind of got this white robe, and then he was given a harp, and he was kind of through the pearly gates, right? And he sat on a cloud. Like, it's just kind of some place where you kind of go. And maybe for you, that's the end of the story. Maybe that's what, well, God, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's something like that. Maybe for you, the end of the story is a little bit more like Jesus in a spiritual X-wing fighter, like, before it gets really, really bad, before the suffering and all of the pain and all of the challenge and the difficulty that the world is going to, live, we're going to go through, somehow we get sucked up into the air, right? And we go to some place, and then, you know, Jesus shows up in a spiritual X-wing fighter, dodging demonic photon phasers, right? He drops a spiritual torpedo into the exhaust shaft of the world and just destroys the whole thing while we live for, forever in some ethereal kind of place. Is that the end of the story? Well, the problem with both those versions of the end of the story is that actually neither of them are in the Bible. And so today we want to take a look at what does the Bible actually teach us about the end of the story and how does understanding the end of the story help us live today? And I'm going to give away the punchline. The punchline is this, that the end of the story involves real people in a real place with a real God whose presence abides with his children. And so let's take a look at it. Go, let's go over to Revelations. I know, Revelation. We're going to talk about Revelation today. <laughs> Revelation chapter 21, okay? Are you guys ready? So we're going to read a few verses. Are you ready? You got to buckle up your seatbelt. Here we go. All right, this is what it says in Revelation 21, uh, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. Now notice it's a new heaven and a new earth. Not some ethereal place that we kind of go and kind of describe it. No, no, it's tangible. It's real. It's a new heavens and a new earth similar to the heavens and the earth that we experience right now but without sin. And so there's been this redeeming, this refining, this renewing. The old is gone and the new system, or the old system is gone and the new has arrived. And it goes on and he says this, and the sea was also gone. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no ocean because we recognize in other places in Revelation that, man, there is an ocean, there's seas. But to these early writers, for the sea, the sea represented uh, despair or darkness or chaos. And what God is saying through, the, through John and writing Revelation here is he's saying, listen, all of that chaos, all of that darkness, it's all 
gone. And he goes on in verse 2, and he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now remember, this story started in a lush garden. It descended into a wilderness of sin and despair. And then last week we discovered that, that, that this story took a dramatic turn because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so that, that what we need to recognize is that God now is at work. He's been at work and he is at work. Jesus said it this way, I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you. So God's at work. He's up to something. Something is going on. But the other thing I want you to recognize is that, that this wasn't just about an individual, right? This was about something social. There was something communal. There was something that was going on that God was creating, a community that not only would be with God, but would be with one another. He goes on in verse 3, and he says this, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Man, that ought to encourage our souls. Doesn't that take us back to the first chapter where God would abide, he would dwell, he would come down in the cool of the evening and walk with Adam and Eve? His presence was always available to them without encumberment or or hindrance. There was no sin, there was no separation. God was just with his people. And what John is telling us here in Revelation is that that's coming back. That, that without hindrance and without encumberment, we're going to be in God's presence. Nothing will separate. He goes on and he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That sounds like it's meant to be. That sounds like it was in the Garden of Eden. That sounds like what it was like in chapter 1. And it's what we talked about last week, that God is inviting us back to the garden, back to how it was meant to be. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, And there's one sitting on the throne. And he said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But cowards and unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the lake, a fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so what I want you to see is that the end of the story is not some sort of mystical, ethereal type place where we float and kind of no idea what it's like. God paints a picture for us. And what we'll discover in a minute is that God paints this picture throughout the Bible of the end chapter, the the final chapter of the story, what God has redeemed us for, what he's inviting us into. In fact, he actually continues it. Flip over to chapter 22. And look what he says in Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel of the Lord showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life. Where have we seen the tree of life before? Chapter 1 in the garden. That's right. 
bearing 12 crops of fruit with fresh crop each month. Look at that. That, that sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to die and go to heaven, and man, I'm going to worship for, you know, a million years or whatever, you know, a thousand years, 10,000 years, whatever that song Matt Redman wrote, right? Is that all I do? No, no, no. Look, there's actually creation. There's fruit on the trees. There's diversity of fruit. Just when you're getting sick of that kind of fruit, there's another kind of harvest, another kind of fruit that comes forth. And so, so he continues on. He says, then the leaves will be used for medicine to heal the nations. Now, I want you to see something there that He's describing that there's still nations, there's still cultures, there's still ethnicities, but the war is over, and now there's this beautiful diversity in the unity around, in unity around Jesus. He goes on, he says, no longer will there be curse upon anything, for the throne of God and, the, and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. In other words, remember what happened in the garden, or when the fall happened, there was a curse and there was work happening before that, but it was work without toil. But because of the fall, because of sin, because of the curse, there's now work with toil. But Jesus is describing this final chapter when everything will be as it was meant to be. It's a return to the garden, and there's still going to be work, but it's work without toil. It's work without worry of decay, work without worry of will it work out. No, no, no. There's going to be blessing and fruitfulness, multiplication, just the way Jesus described it in chapter 1 of his story. He goes on and he says in verse 4, and there, then they will see his face. And think about that for a minute. We see through a veil dimly, right? We haven't fully experienced who God is because if we were to do that right now, man, we would blow up, we would explode because of his holiness. But something's coming in this next chapter where we will behold his face and he says his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel of the Lord said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. And, and the point that I'm simply trying to make to us this morning is that the end of the story is not God destroying everything. The end of the story is God restoring, renewing, reconciling, that we get to be with him, that all creation is as it was meant to be. In fact, the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah and Amos, man, they talk about this all the time. They talk about how deserts will flourish and how there will be vines and grapes on mountaintops and how the wolf and the lamb will lay down together, right? That how the lion will eat straw and be with the calf, right? In other words, everything will be as it was meant to be. Everything in the Bible was pointing to the cross, but through the cross to what God was doing and restoring us to his original intent. That ought to excite us. That you and I, we get to be a part of that. That we're moving towards something. And it ought to change how we live today. It ought to affect how we live today. And if, if at no other level, just that this, that on our best days, there's a hint of what's to come. You know that day when everything goes as it ought to go? You know that day when you wake up in the morning and the sky is blue and you go for a hike and you just see the majesty of God's creation? You come home and the kids are playing delightfully in the front yard together, right? Everything is as it's meant to be, right? In those moments, that's just a hint of what's to come. But you know on your worst day, 
Even on your worst day, Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 8.13. He says, on your worst day, it's not even worthy. The suffering that you and I experience today isn't even worthy of being compared to future glory. And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that this picture of the future The Bible lays it out in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It lays it out so clearly what God is up to, what God is doing. That ought to affect and influence how you and I live out today. And so how does this impact how we live today? Well, the first thing I want us to recognize is this. How does this picture of the future impact how you and I, as followers of Jesus, live out today? And the first thought I want to leave you with this morning is this is that you and I, we need to recognize that today, God is perfecting us. That God is using this space, this time. He has purchased you, right? Jesus died on the cross, rose again, so that you could be fully and forever forgiven. You are justified before God. When God looks at you, God looks at you through Christ, and what he sees is forgiven, mine. That's my child. They belong to me. No matter how rough it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, they belong to me. Why? Because you've been justified by Jesus. But there's this other little word that's used in kind of theological kind of world um, called sanctification. And and how many of you would agree that yes, I, I, I understand kind of that I'm justified with Jesus, that I'm forgiven, but man, I still struggle with sin. Anybody? Does anybody struggle with lying? Okay, if you didn't raise your hands. There's not one of us perfect. We're on a journey. But we're on a journey where we are being perfected. We're being, to use that biblical word or that that theological word, we're being sanctified. We're being restored to who God designed us to be. We don't have to believe the lie anymore. There's a truth that if we would lead into and believe, we begin to recognize that God's at work in our hearts. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We won't worry about that part right now. We'll leave that one for another day, right? But for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Look what he says. To be conformed to the image of his son. You want to know what God's up to? God is up to conforming you to the image of his son. This is what God is doing today. God is working in your heart. God has redeemed you through the work of Jesus Christ. But God's not done with you just because he's redeemed you and he's forgiven you. God doesn't finish there. God says, no, 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 I've got more work to do. I've got an intent and a plan for your life. And what is he working to do? He's working to conform you, to transform you, to have you reflect the glory of God by being the image of Christ. And it ought to be that way that as we continue to grow in our relationship with Jesus, that man, I'm less selfish, I'm less greedy, that I'm more loving, I'm more kind, I'm more generous with what God has given me. Why? Because God's conforming me to the image of Jesus, and this is who Jesus is. It's interesting when you read Paul, Paul said this all the time. He says, man, I'm laboring, I'm struggling, I'm striving. He says, in fact, in Galatians 4.19, he says, I'm laboring as in childbirth. And some of you in the room know what that means. And so there's this striving, this laboring, what? To see Christ formed in you. 
This is what God's up to in this season. In fact, look what it says in, in Philippians 1 and verse 6. He says, of this I am sure. Now, there's not too many things in life we can be sure about, right? But look what we, what we can be sure of is that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's the one that began it? It was God, right? It wasn't a trick question. You can say Jesus, and nine times out of ten, you're going to be right. But who was it that began the work? Who is it that continues the work? And who is it that's going to complete the work? Do you see who is faithful to us? Who's at work in us? That it's God who's at work. It's God who's conforming. It's God who is transforming us to become more and more like him. But the reality is that you and I have a part to play on that journey. That God is the one who starts it. God is the one who sustains it. God is the one who completes it. But God has invited, just like he invited Adam and Eve in the garden to participate with him, God is inviting those of us who are following Jesus Christ to, part, part, to partner with him in this work of sanctification. And so, well, how do we do that? What does that look like for us? Well, glad you asked. There's a few things that the Bible teaches us. And the first thing is this, and, and it's going to sound kind of strange because oftentimes this is where we get ourselves in trouble. Because we believe the secular story that says, well, what's my part? I've got to work hard. I've got to try a little harder. I've got to kind of muscle up. I've got to bear down. I've got to go after this in my own strength. That sounds awfully like the secular story, doesn't it? But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says this. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. How do we partner with God in this work of transformation, in this us being restored and conformed to the image of Christ? We look to Jesus. Why? He's the one that's the author and the finisher of our faith. In fact, the verses that we just read out of Revelation said that he's the alpha and the omega, which means that he's not just the beginning and the end, he's everything in between. And the secular story, remember, we're just using that title as this kingdom of self, kingdom of this world. That lie, that story tries to get you to take your eyes off of God, which is what happened in the garden, and tries to put it on yourself. And this is where the secular story can just become a religious story, that I'm just trying harder in my own strength. But it's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that we're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How many of you, at times, grow weary and lose heart? And this is exactly what was happening to the people that re received this letter, the book of Hebrews. They thought Jesus had died and he had been resurrected and they, he had ascended into heaven, right? And so they're expecting Jesus to return. And they had sold everything. They'd put all the chips into the middle of the table. Jesus is going to return. One week goes by, two weeks, three weeks, months, years. Jesus hasn't returned. Did we miss it? Well, the author of this book actually writes to them to say, no, 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 you haven't missed it. Don't be discouraged. Don't be despondent in the in-between, in this chapter of the story. Keep your eyes fixed 
on Jesus. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How are we being transformed from one degree of glory to another? By beholding Jesus. Look, that's what it said in 2 Corinthians. Now, the problem is that most of us want that to be a little bit more of an Audubon experience. You know, like fast freeway type stuff. And it feels a little bit more like a dirt road going uphill. And the reality is that God's transformation of us, God's conforming us to the image of Christ is a slower, more deliberate kind of process. In fact, it's a little bit like raising your kids. You know, some of you, it seems like yesterday. I know for me, it's that way. You know, it's like, you know, I remember when I was able to hold my son, you know, like one hand, you know, I felt all manly. Look at me, I'm holding life in one hand. (laughs) He's that size, you know. And for some of you, you remember that day. But, but it's taken time, but now, you know, he's six foot one, and he, you know, he plays linebacker for the high school football team or something, right? Like, like, how did it go from here to here? How did it go from this little bundle of joy to this guy that kind of is a, you know, a crusher of other man on the football field, right? Like, how did that happen? Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, you loved them, you fed them, you cared for them, and they grow up. Well, the same is true in the kingdom of God. The same is true of the sanctifying work of Jesus in our life, that we want instant growth, but we need to recognize that it's a process, it's a journey, it's a partnership, but what do we do? We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Every day, every moment, every circumstance, I'm not looking at all the news channels, I'm not looking at the web, I'm not looking at the newspaper, I'm not looking at all of these other things. I'm keeping my eyes every day fixed on Jesus. This is why spending time in his presence, this is why praying and reading his word is such an important part of the Christian life because we're we're bombarded with lies that try to get us to believe other things when we ought to come back to the book that's all about the truth. Remember what it said in Revelations? Write this down. I am truth and trustworthy. You can trust God. And so we've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what we've got to do. So, What does that look like? How do we then live that out? Well, the second thing we need to recognize is that that God doesn't leave you to your own devices, but he actually gives you a new operating system. Now, how many of you have a PC? Yeah, there were some snickers in the room. I love that. (laughs) That was awesome. At least I thought I heard somebody snickering. Maybe that was just in my head. (laughs) Why would you have a PC? (laughs) How many of you have Macs, uh, iPhones? Come on. Yeah, you guys tend to be a little bit more passionate, right? But, but how many of you know, regardless of whether you've got a PC or a Mac, if there's not an operating system on the hardware, you can't use any of the features, right? You can't operate the hardware if there's not an operating system. And, and the reality is that, that when we are forgiven, when we are adopted into God's family, God doesn't say, well, there you go, now figure it out. God actually says, no, 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 I'm going to come alongside you. In fact, he doesn't say, I'm just going to come alongside you. He actually tells us this, I'm going to fill you with my presence. Look what it says in John. John chapter 14. And it says this, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now, isn't that interesting? You already have one advocate. His name is Jesus. 
And here's what's the most amazing thing about Jesus. We always talk about Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But you know what? His ascension was just as important because the Bible tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he's doing? He's not eating Twinkies. You know what the Bible tells us what he's doing? He's making intercession for you and for me. Think about that for a second. I mean, there's a lot of people that I love to have pray for me because I feel like, man, God hears their, their prayer. But to have Jesus who's sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for you and I, that ought to encourage our hearts. That ought to help us recognize, wow, I'm not alone. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, no, 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 I'm gonna send you another advocate who will never leave you. If you circle or underline in your Bible, that's a really important word. He will never leave you. He goes on in verse 17. He says, he is the Holy Spirit who leads us in all truth. The world cannot receive him because it, is, it, it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you and now and later he will be with you. He says, no, I will not abandon you as orphans, but I will come to you. And the point that I'm simply trying to get us to understand is that God gives us his Holy Spirit. In fact, later on in verse um, 26, he actually says this. He says, the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything that I have told you. In other words, you live in a culture. Remember we started in week one saying that, that culture is to humans what water is to fish? That we're just surrounded by it, we swim in it. We're so influenced by the stories that we hear, the lies that we hear, right? That the things that just go on in culture. And, and we've been given God's word, but not only have we been given God's word, we've been given God's spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says that he will teach us all things and remind us of everything that God said through Jesus. That, that we actually get to be reminded of the truth, that there are moments in time when I'm feeling tempted or I'm feeling like, man, I'm going to step this direction. And that the Holy Spirit could actually speak to us and whisper in our ear and say, don't go that way. Don't go down that path. Don't enter into that sin. Come over this way. In other words, he's saying, you're not left to your own devices. I love it in John chapter 20. And this is such a beautiful picture of what God did in chapter 1. Jesus was with his disciples, and he says this. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so now I am sending you. In other words, there's work to be done. The kingdom of God here on earth is, is at hand, right? And so we're to participate in that. And he goes on in verse 22, and he says, and then he said this to them, as he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now what's so interesting about that little passage is that that's a mirror of something that God did in chapter one. In chapter one, or sorry, chapter two of Genesis, verse 27, you remember that God formed man out of the dust of the earth, but man was not alive until God breathed into him. See, God's unfolding his original plan. God's bringing us back to chapter one of the story. And God says, you're not alone. You're not trying to figure this out in, you know, of your own strength. But God is breathing. He's giving us his very spirit. In fact, it says in Galatians, and I think this is on a slide, but, but that God gives us this new operating system. And the point that I'm simply trying to make is that the new operating system that you have is life in the spirit. 
Galatians does this whole comparison thing of life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. But he says, no, 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 you've been now invited into life in the spirit. God has given you his Holy Spirit. And he says this, walk by the spirit, be led by the spirit, live by the spirit, follow the spirit. How many of you would recognize this morning that God is giving you a new operating system, that you don't have to operate in your own strength, your own resourcefulness. And the reason why is because you don't have what it takes Despite what advertisers will tell you, despite what Nike will tell you and Adidas and all of the other kind of athletic companies that say impossible is nothing, just do it, you can do it, all of these things, you and I don't have what it takes. And thank God, because God says, I'm breathing my life into you. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit so that you don't try in and of your own strength. But you're given my spirit, my strength, so that you can be transformed, conformed to the image of my son. And here's what I love. It's not just that God then says, hey, it's you and me, baby. We can do this. Some sort of Thelma and Louise thing, right? Like, this is not what God invited us to. That's the first part of it. But you know what else God does? We've got to recognize God actually sets us in his family. God says, you're not alone. You're not alone. I'm not leaving you as an orphan. I'm giving you my spirit. I'm breathing the very life of God, my presence into you. You're not alone. But not only are you not alone because I've just given you my spirit, you're not alone because I actually set you in the family. Look, it says in uh, Psalm 68, verse 6, God sets the lonely in families. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, God places the members in the body. Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what God's invited us to. That God encourages us and strengthens us through his word, through his spirit, but he does it also through the body of Christ. And God has invited you and I into that space, into that place. That this right here, this family gathered right here, that we are actually here to encourage one another, to strengthen one another, to love one another, to pray for one another, to challenge one another, to challenge one another, to challenge one another, to faith and good works. That God has actually brought us together. He says, you're not alone. And, and what I wrote about in chapter one, as it was meant to be this symphony of people who are just committed to and drawing life and everything that they need from Jesus. That's what our reality ought to be right now. Now, we realize it's not perfect. We realize that, man, we bump into some things because we're broken human beings. We're, none of us are perfect. We're all sinful. We're all dealing with sin. We're all forgiven if you've trusted Jesus. And so we have the opportunity not just to hang on, but we have the opportunity to actually step into this chapter in this season as those that are not just loved and redeemed and adopted by Jesus, but as those who can actually experience eternal life, the life of heaven, the very life of God here on earth as it is in heaven. And so here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us all actually just to stand together. We're going to sing a little song. It's more than a little song. It's a prayer. And we're going to 
just ask. Uh, we've got one more week of this series, but, but today is about us understanding what God has invited us into. And so this morning, I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you just to think about what version of the story are you living out? Are you living out a version of the story that is about me, myself, and I, about, man, I've got to provide for myself, I've got to do it myself? Are you living out a version of the story, God's story, that says, no, I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you back to the garden, back into my presence, that you're not just forgiven, you're not just adopted into my family. No, 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 I'm giving you myself And this is what we see throughout the Bible over and over and over again. God is giving himself to his people. And so Jesus, this morning, Lord, with our hearts humbled before you, our hands just extended to you in surrender, Lord, we're recognizing that this is the invitation. You're inviting us into the garden, into presence, into your life. Jesus, we recognize that you came to announce the good news of the gospel. What was it? What was it? What is it? What is that good news, Jesus? That the kingdom of God has come to dwell amongst men. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning, we recognize we want to be a place. We want to be a family. Lord Jesus, we want to be the kind of family that has extra chairs at the table because, Lord, there are those that are going to come into this house, into this family, into this place, Lord, needing to experience the very life and the very presence of Jesus. And so, Lord, we're making ourselves available to be that kind of community. Regular people living out God's story the way Jesus showed us. So, Lord, we're inviting heaven to come here on earth.